0: The fake show is brought to you by Threads of Envy, the law firm of Hutchison and Steffen, the Craft House Brewery, the Tone Factory Recording Studio, Moonshot.com T shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna.
1: All meet George Carp. Hey, baby, what's that We got assholes, scumbags, jerk offs, and dipshits, and they all vote. He was funny, he was smart, he was opinionated. I want it to be just like him. He was just so cool. Here's the list of words you can't say all
2: the
0: time. They arrested me for profanity.
1: The Supreme Court restricts the broadcast of dirty words. I'm
0: going to jump to it right now. He's the Beatles of comedy.
3: Those are moments from the new two-part documentary on HBO and HBO Max called George Carlin's American Dream. It's executive produced by George Carlin's daughter, Kelly, and directed by Judd Apatow. And it focuses on the deeply brilliant life of comedian George Carlin and the things that shaped his life, both professionally and personally. We get a unique insight now into the Carlin family story from Kelly Carlin, who joins me from California. Hey, Jim. Kelly, welcome back to the show. I think the last time we talked, you had written the wonderful book about your dad and your family, the Carlin Home Companion. Is that something that you started to piece together, the book, before your dad passed?
4: Yes, actually, Jim. I had started doing uh, personal essays, performing personal essays around Los Angeles, and it started to, you know, put, put it, I had about six or seven kind of big stories around that and uh, had them and knew that someday I wanted to write a book. And uh, so, yeah, I was already already working on it uh, a couple of years before my dad died.
3: I'm assuming he knew that, and how did he feel about it?
4: He, he did know about it. Um, it made him uncomfortable,
0: <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> uh, which I understand. Someone else is telling you know their view of your story or their experience with you, and it would make me uncomfortable, too. Uh, but I did it with always love. I never did it from a blaming or a victim perspective. But I didn't know at the time when I did share that with my dad that I was thinking about writing this book uh, that, you know, and, I, and he was uncomfortable with it. I I decided to, to put it on pause because, you know, even two years before my dad died, I knew he had heart, heart condition, a serious heart condition. And, and I just didn't want anything to stress him. And I didn't want anything to come in between us. I didn't want to have to work through that. So... Um, yep. You know, I, I left it, I put it on a shelf knowing that it wasn't as important as my relationship with my father at the time.
3: And now the two-part documentary on HBO, did Judd Apatow approach you about this or, or how did that uh, come about?
4: No, actually four years ago, a gentleman named uh, Teddy Liefer, who's the producer, another producer on the, on the documentary, he approached me and he's from England and he had a very, very unique approach and just had a lot of great ways of seeing the world and, and seeing, making documentaries, and I really liked his take on it. We had turned a lot of people away, a lot of people down, uh, and then it wasn't the right time, and then about two years ago, or two and a half years ago now, it was the right time, and we interviewed a couple of directors, and then we landed on Judd, and we just knew right away that Judd would be the guy. He yeah. not only had great narrative ability because he tells a great story in film. He'd done an amazing job with Gary Shandling's documentary. I was a close friend of Gary's and and knew how powerful that documentary was. I knew he had the emotional intelligence to tell the family part of it, and he was really interested in the personal story and knew because I was alive and here to tell that part that it would be an integral part of the documentary also.
3: I know there's a connection there, too, with Gary Shandling. I, I recall that story about how when Gary was... Becoming a stand-up comedian, he actually brought some material to George, and George was very nice and receptive about the, the stuff that he was reading of Gary's.
4: Yeah, and encouraged Gary, said, you know, there's something funny on every single page, and if you're thinking of doing this, you know, I would tell you to, to go and pursue it. And uh, shortly after, Gary dropped out of college and went that <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, his, I'm sure he told his parents, well, George told me to do this. <laughs>
4: <laughs> exactly. I'm not going to be an engineer, Mom and Dad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Yeah.
3: It, isn't it amazing to you, uh, especially, how continually relevant your dad's material is to this day?
4: Yeah, yeah, it is. Uh, Judd and I have been talking a lot about that this week, you know, that it's like there's not other dead comedians trending every five minutes on yeah. social media. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, there's no other videos of guys talking about issues. Uh, and, you know, and I've really been thinking about this a lot, and I really do see this as he's a man who was a deep thinker and observer, and he yeah. really understood the power structures of this culture. And he just thought, thought for what it was, spoke about it. And I think a lot of us weren't quite ready to hear it all. We would hear it from him, and we would laugh about it, and we would think about it, and sometimes we'd be irritated by it, you know, or, or upset that he was getting so angry and dark, as they say. Uh, but he was a man, I think, trying to like put up flares and say, "Hey, people, this is going on," and we weren't ready, and so here we are now, and it's all unfolding. It's still unfolding. It's, un- it's unfolding on steroids. And uh, and once again, he trends on
3: Twitter. Kelly, I remember as a kid seeing the first version of George Carlin, the comedian, with the jacket and tie on The Ed Sullivan Show. Then just a few years later, it didn't seem like much time at all, the long hair bearded George as part of the counterculture. I wonder if it was just so difficult for him to kind of make that transition, or was it a natural thing? Because it it seemed like it happened pretty quickly, at least to to someone like me, who would watch him every now and then.
4: Yeah, I think that's one of the the great things about this documentary, is we really walk you through each of these transitions. He had a couple during his career where he had a personal awakening, um, and the culture was changing, he was evolving. But that first one, um, you know, I think he was always that guy on the inside. He just presented on the outside because he wanted a career in showbiz. And that's the path you took as a comedian. Right. There was no other path. Uh, and so he had to do that, even though musicians during the 60s were having a very different experience than comedians. And then at some point, he just could not take it anymore. And then, of course, he's getting fired from places. He was getting threats on stage. You know, he just wasn't fitting in to the old mold. And it was it was killing him, killing his soul. And he had to make the leap, and it's just there's some very poignant moments around that in the documentary that I won't share here because I want people to watch it. Um, <laughs> around my mother, and and the, you know, and the pressure and the tension it put on, you know, put in our own personal lives in the moment, but also just how we all we all went along for the ride.
3: You and your mom, of course, went through everything with George. It's been well chronicled, especially in the book that they both went through their substance abuse problems. I, I remember hearing that your dad was, he wanted your mom to be a stay-at-home mom, even though she had ambitions of her own, maybe.
4: Yeah, yeah, and that definitely, I think, shaped a lot of women's lives in the 60s. My dad was a latchkey yeah. kid raised by a single mom. He didn't want that for me, uh, but my mother was highly intelligent and creative and gifted, and... Um, And had already had, you know, was having, had always had some issues with alcohol. But this really, really put her into a deep depression and an identity crisis. And she turned to alcohol, and they both turned to more dangerous, you know, things like that later. Uh, And and it did. It took its toll on her. And so her story is well told in this also, which really was important to me because, um, you know, she was a huge factor in his success also. So it was just important for people to understand all of the factors in a great artist's
3: life. Yeah, and stayed with him, and they worked things out uh, to the end. When it your sure dad, did. Kelly, when your dad was at his best, I mean, there was always a certain decency in his words, and, and I always like what he stood for. He certainly was somebody who kind of rooted for the underdog. That was a big part of his material.
4: Yep, yes. He was a man who really cared for people, really saw the people who were always pushed aside, marginalized, you know, through our culture, through our politics, our economics. Uh, You know, he he really uh, was very frustrated by that. And he was a very decent person. He really believed that we need to learn to care for each other and lift people up. And he was not an activist on the front line, but I really think he used his material and used his comedy... To shine a light on the ways in which we're not doing that job well. Um, And and so, you know, he didn't offer any solutions, but he was always trying to be kind of like the Zen master that comes around with the stick and says, like, wake up, wake up, people.
3: Before I let you go, I just wanted to say one of the highlights of my morning radio experience was back in the I guess it was nineteen ninety six He was on our morning show and could not have been more gracious and He was very much on that morning and had us cracking up it like a musician who just knew how to make words sing it was It was just one of the great things of my radio career to be part of that morning
4: oh i'm I'm so glad you got you got to see that and also really got to experience his is warm.
3: Everybody, make sure you check out uh, Kelly's new two-part documentary on HBO, George Carlin's American Dream.
4: Also streaming on HBO Max.
3: Looking forward to that. Kelly, always nice to catch up with you. Thanks so much.
4: Thanks for having me.
3: And now, as promised, George Carlin, when he was a guest on our morning show, The Johnson & Tofty Show here in Las Vegas, with Ken Johnson, myself, and our news guy, Dennis Mitchell.
2: It's an honor to have you on the program this morning.
3: Thank you. Good to be on.
2: Yeah, good deal. You uh, have been in the business a very long time. Hey, how come you don't <laughs> run out of jokes?
1: Uh, I don't know. We're uh, starting
2: with the dumb questions and moving into the smart ones
1: later. Yeah, I don't mind it's then. been 36 years. I've done uh, nine of those wow. HBO shows, and I just uh, I love what I do, so that I guess it flows huh. in easily.
0: Well, your shows here are uh, are so well Received uh, the shows at Valleys. Thank you. And uh, it just seems to me, I've seen your show now probably four times in the last two or three years, and it just seems that it's always fresh and uh, the crowd loves you. Yeah, you seem to have found a home here.
1: Well, the nice thing about, see, I do about 150 shows a year. Okay. And I generally work in theaters and in concert halls. But uh, Las Vegas is good because it gives me a chance to stay out of the airport and settle down for two weeks. Yeah. I can write. I can have my family with me. And uh, the audiences come to me instead of me going to them.
2: When, when do you get a chance to write? This is it. Because otherwise you'd just be doing observational stuff about <laughs> motel soap. And- <laughs> <laughs> no,
1: I, I've, been, I've been saving thoughts and collecting files for a long time, probably, you know, 30 or more years since I started. Sure. And, uh, and I'm, I'm sort of anal about filing them and classifying them and categorizing them and keeping track of them. So, I'm, I'm you know, I just have a, a broad amount of stuff to draw from, and uh, it keeps growing.
0: Are you constantly uh, still, uh, you know, taking notes on uh, oh, yeah. stuff that you see?
1: Yeah, I, I, I probably produce about, you know, 10 or 12 pieces of paper a day.
0: Unbelievable.
1: Half of it, I, I think, is, is really good, and the other half I hate to throw away because it might get good.
2: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you give it a little more thought, a little time, a little yeah, distance, right, and all that. Yeah. How, how big is the list grown of words that you're not supposed to be able to say?
1: Well, I don't really uh, <laughs> do that as a routine, except sometimes at the end of the show, I do a short list of, of just one category. But I have a poster that we sell that has 2,443. Oh, my, oh, my God. So the <laughs> wow. Filthy words and phrases. We also have a booklet and a T-shirt with 2,000. So we're, we're uh, merchandising hey. filth. Very no, well,
2: that's great. I had no idea it had gotten that <laughs> large. I knew it was yeah. in the hundreds. But... Well, I
1: got uh, I got interested in it, and uh, being anal, you know, I had, <laughs> I had to look in every book that's there was. And, and everybody who gave mm-hmm. them to me or sent them to me, and I just classified them and, and put them in a list.
2: What is one of the funniest words you're not supposed to be able to say that you can think of? Um,
1: yeah. Shooting putty at the moon. <laughs> <laughs> Which men will know about. Yeah. That's
0: good. I like that. Hey, you know, uh, as far as words are concerned, you know, on radio, for instance, it's kind of cloudy what you can and cannot say anymore. I I know.
1: Well, you know, uh, that that original ruling was uh, based on my recording. That The original case, a lot of people call them the seven dirty words. Right. The, the routine was called Seven Words You Can Never Say on TV. Uh-huh. And that one went to the Supreme Court. Uh, I, I, my record was played by a station in New York, and the FCC lodged a... Uh, someone lodged a complaint with the FCC, and they fined the station. The station fought it out in court, court, and they won a couple of times, and then they lost in the Supreme Court. So I am a, um, a historical footnote. How about I'm a, that? I'm a legal curiosity, and <laughs> among other types. And uh, that thing has stood up as uh, indecent language, not obscene, but indecent. And then, of course, I added a few, and then it it got bigger. And now it's, it's very amorphous. It's very hard to tell what time of day you can say something and you can't and if you're Stephen Bochco you can say something or if you're Ted Koppel right. you can play it Right. but all of these kind of loose that just shows how ridiculous the whole thing is I think
0: watching TV Land Nickelodeon's uh, network their yeah. kind of splinter network saw you on a recent episode of, of That Girl
1: oh yeah one of my big high points how about yeah, that <laughs> that was, uh, that was yeah. what you would call a
0: breakout performance
1: I was I was <laughs> just petrified I was so frightened I, I thought I would become an actor real easily I thought that was my Birthright, right. Uh-huh. Just to move right into acting there in the mid '60s, when my my comedy career was good and hot,
0: sure. And I
1: had a big disappointment to deal with. I couldn't act. I had no technique. Oh, oh. I had no training. I had some instincts, but they weren't enough.
2: But let me let me ask you. I saw you as uh, the the big na- in the big neighbor role in Prince
1: of Tides. Yeah. Well, now that's years years later yeah. when I, I, I begin. You know, I have some a certain amount of self confidence. Yeah. About who I am and and how, where I belong, and so. That and The Streets of Laredo last fall on CBS, which was a western thing where I played wow. a dramatic role. You did a great that. job in
2: that, Prince of Tides.
1: Thank you. I, I was very happy with it. And I now find I can act, But uh, <laughs> but, I, but what happens is I was forced into becoming a comedian. For a, a serious comedian, you know, to really stay at it and work, and I'm so happy that happened.
0: Well, yeah. my my kids, uh, to tell you what a good actor you are, they really think that you are a conductor.
1: Shining time
0: stage. How Absolutely. about that, huh? Yeah, that's yeah. a lot of fun. One of the things about in your bio that we were looking over, we didn't realize uh, was that you used to be paired up with uh, Jack, Jack Burns. Burns.
1: Yeah, Burns and Carlin. We worked for two years together back in the early 60s and had some very good fortune. We were on the uh, Jack Carr show very early in our career. We made an album, and in two years, we managed to do a lot. And then, uh, you know, I had always had in mind to be a single, and Jack wanted to get into acting, so he went to Second City.
2: Because the two of us are hoping, you know, that one of us will break out after he discovers pot like you did. Oh, no,
1: good. <laughs> well, actually, I discovered that when I was 13. Oh, there you go. Wow. So, so that's, I, I was really funny when I was a kid, though.
2: Here's another dumb question. What's your favorite album of all the ones you put out?
1: Well, i always most impressed, if I can use that word, with my latest work. The latest stuff I've been doing, the last two home box office shows, uh-huh. 96 this year. Uh, which will—it's uh, been on already five times. They'll run it again in the fall, and the CD comes out in September. That one's called "Back in Town." That's the work I love the most. But sentimentally, I think uh, "Class Clown" or "FM and AM." The first two of the real Yay. hot streak I had.
0: What kind of stuff are you uh, observing today that that you could talk about?
1: Well, uh, you know, it's, it's always just, um, it's, it's, there's three areas I draw from. I guess you're trying to lead me a little bit here. But, uh, (laughs) I, um, I'm always drawing from three areas. Uh, you know, in my show at the, at the, uh, here in Las Vegas, I try to mix three things. I do some things from, uh, the English language. I do some things from the little world, what I think of as a little world, like you know picking things out of your body and looking at them, uh. and then <laughs> the larger world, which is like the death penalty and men and women and people who kill each other and stuff. Yeah, sure. But yeah. N- do you guys do a lot of sports on this station? Uh, yeah. A little bit, yeah. Our sports cast is called nope. the Grits and Shins. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's right. And I heard that earlier in the morning. Right. In basketball. I mean, to really speed the game up, have a little more fun. I think there should be a gasoline fire at half court. <laughs> <laughs> uh. You know. <laughs> Talk about a really fast break. I, oh man, I Do a Knicks think game? That, yep. This would be great. This would help the game a lot, especially in one sided games. I think if you make a shot from more than half court it should be 50 points. Yes. And hey. I think it was really, you know, at the end of a game when you're down 25 or so, you just keep, stay out there and just keep shooting them up and have a couple of guys under the basket to feed them back to you. And they can make it, too. Bookies 25 love it. 25 points for a ball that goes in off an opponent's head. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I also think that basketball players should be allowed to have their girlfriends help them on defense. Uh, yes. In the last quarter. Or, or maybe, and, and, uh, well, uh, on football. Uh, in football, I think we should leave the injured on the field. Yeah. Leave them out there. These guys are supposed to be tough. Let them lie out there and you just jump over them and run around them. Toward the end of the game, it would be kind of interesting. And maybe in the last quarter, the players should be allowed to use weapons. Yeah. I'm of and the winning team should be allowed to spike the losing coach. but you see i I learned about sports i got i got out of it because it really bothered me a lot when my i'm a new york fan Uh and it's a sentimental attachment to any team that's from new york it's just it's kind of it's more psychological than it is a sports routine
2: Uh uh-huh
1: and but but they disappoint you so often you know i mean one out of one out of ten years you're going to get a pennant or a world series or something or a, a championship so the Harlem Globetrotters is now my team. <laughs> so on yeah. Now right.
2: you used to do a sports character, Biff Burns. Was that a tip of the hat to Jack?
1: Uh, well, we called it Biff Burns at first, but then uh, we realized that Bob and Ray had a character called Biff Burns. All, All right, right. So, so we changed it to Biff Barf. Biff Barf. All Biff right. Barf, picking them yeah, up and right. barfing them right back at you. That's <laughs> right. Here's the partial score: Cincinnati five. There yeah.
2: You go. <laughs> How uh, Bob and Ray are such heroes to me that I actually have a tattoo. Of Bob and Ray on my left arm.
1: That's great. Now uh, I've, ne- I've never heard that. I have all, I have all those old. Uh, do you have all those old cassettes that they're selling? Absolutely. Now? The public yeah. radio. Yeah, it's so great. It's
0: yeah. so great. So okay. what's coming up for you, George? Is there another HBO special in the planning? Well,
1: I just finished one in March. That was my ninth. You know, it takes a couple of years to get this stuff together. Yeah. So I'm just starting to work on things now and put them in shape and get them on stage and. I'm just out there doing my uh, my usual thing. Like I say, every weekend I'm out on the road in some city or town, and uh, and then I get the rest here a little bit and do a kind of an easier life for two weeks. So right. I'll be here another weekend, a couple of days. We go through next I, Wednesday.
0: I've seen you uh, walking around at the Bally's gift sh- gift shop with your dog or something. I yeah, little Mo. That.
1: Well, he's yeah. not with me this time. When Brenda comes down, she might bring him with her. Oh, very cool! Yeah, he's a good little guy.
2: Well, I can't tell you how happy we are that you're so comfortable here in town and uh, that you spent a couple minutes with us this morning, which we appreciate. That well,
1: I thank you and and thanks for the chance to plug the show. No problem, man. Next time you come in while I'm there, make yourself known, please, and let's uh, shoot the crap a little bit up in the dressing room. (laughs) We'll We'll, do that, George.
0: Shoot the putty and all that stuff. There you go.
1: rock station.
3: we were so lucky to talk to george carlin on that morning in 1996 thank you once again for listening i'm jim Tofty for the fake show podcast i'll see you next time listen to the fake show anywhere on
0: soundcloud stitcher itunes and thefakeshow.com